Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We're your hosts, David O. Carly R. And Eric B. You didn't know you were supposed to come in there, did you, Carly? You hesitated. What? There is a slight, <laughs> like, there's a slight delay, David. There is a slight if you delay. remember, you know. I do remember. From your time oh, being on the time. couch. Okay. Well, anyway, today we are joined by our very special guest, Griff. How are you doing today? I'm excellent, guys. Good to be on here with you. Yeah, Absolutely. Man. Pleasure to have PGIF. you. Yeah, man. So where are you from, Griff? You know, I was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Grew up mostly in Texas. And in my adult life and sobriety, I've kind of bounced between Texas and Southern California. And I live in Jupiter, Florida now. Nice. How's the weather? The weather is absolutely gorgeous. I just left an uh, outdoor meeting under a big banyan tree. It's about 74 and, oh, you know, this perfect. is the best time of year in South Florida. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. Uh, it's still cool, kind of cool in the mornings, warm in the afternoon, but the heat hasn't arrived yet. So it's it's the best time to live in the tropics. Absolutely. So when were you first introduced to recovery? Uh, let's see. Um, you know, I, I was a nightclub DJ in the 80s, uh, nice. working in Southern California when I was still drinking. And... Uh, you know, had, I think, three DUIs out there, and this was before DUIs are the big deal that they are today. Mm-hmm. This was kind of pre-Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, so mm-hmm. it wasn't good, but they weren't putting people in jail and taking away your driver's license. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was the it was the fun with problems phase of my drinking, so uh, I kind of did a geographical cure. My mom had a stroke, and they lived near Houston, so I went back to Houston and opened a big nightclub chain called Confetti there in late 1982. And in December of 82, uh, got really drunk uh, and stoned at work and uh, (laughs) got got called into the office by my employer the next morning uh, who told me that I had called the general manager, Harry, uh, an MFer uh, with about a thousand people in the club at midnight, really drunk. Um, and they suggested this, uh, it wasn't really rehab. There weren't rehabs in 82, but it was a mental institution. So mm-hmm. they didn't call it that, but they kind of said, you know, uh, you know, if you'll go do this treatment thing, then we'll have a job waiting for you when you, got, when you get back. Now, it may have been a coincidence, but my Coke dealer also told me that same week that he thought I was an alcoholic. Um, <laughs> so, the, so the universe was definitely attempting to tell me something. Yeah. And uh, I, I was really lucky. I knew nothing about AA or 12-step programs. Uh, you know, certainly had no idea they were going to ask me to quit or abstain. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that was what they did there. So I just kind of said yes and rolled up some Hawaiian pot in my gym bag and uh, (laughs) checked in, uh, checked in to the treatment center thinking they were going to teach me how to drink. And, you know, I was very fortunate. The the guy that ran the program there uh, was a sober alcoholic of about 20 years and, you know, just basically began the process of cracking my skull open to the fact that I belong there. So that's when I first heard about it was. January of 83. All right. And how long have you been clean? Since January of 83. I've been clean and sober uh, thanks to, 
you know, AA and a loving God since uh, my first AA meeting. So it's kind of mysterious. Yeah. All right. Well, with all that out of the way, we're going to turn it over to you to share your story with us. So take it away. Good. Well, uh, you already got me started. So yeah, I I don't, I'm not a huge drunk along guy. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, my background, my background emotionally was, uh, I was raised pretty much in a leave it to beaver family. You know, Mm -hmm. my parents were really hardworking middle-class kids from Oklahoma and Kansas. My dad worked for mobile oil. He had actually been in the air force and decided not to stay in the air force because he didn't want to move so much, but we moved, I think 11 or 12 times before I got out of high school. So, uh, he was a marketing guy for mobile oil. Mm -hmm. Uh, we moved around every couple of years. And I I say that just because looking back on it, uh, I mean, there really wasn't any overt alcoholism in my family. Uh, you know, I, I'm definitely not really the, you know, I think there's other signs of it, but, you know, outwardly, you know, I, I did not grow up in an environment with people punching their fists through sheetrock walls and, mm-hmm. you know, the really loud abuse. I mean, me and my brother got spanked by my dad because corporal punishment wasn't a big deal back then. Yeah. So I, I, pro- I probably had some growing up traumas with a little T, mm-hmm. uh, not a big T like I, I hear in the rooms. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but moving around was interesting for me. You know, I, I, it's, you know, the, the chameleon part of my alcoholism and, and my codependency, I think got really started there, you know, trying to fit in every couple of years at a new school, trying to, you know, sit on the front row and people please. And, you know, I got very good at, at, you know, just basically kind of being a chameleon, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it took, I just tried to fit in. Uh, and, you know, we moved to Connecticut and Pennsylvania and uh, New York and always came back to Texas. So we were kind of bouncing back and forth. And uh, I learned to lie. So mm. I didn't really think it was lying then. Uh, I just kind of told stories to make people like and accept me. Yeah. Right. And it didn't really matter if they were true. I mean, if I told them enough, they kind of felt true. Um, so this the whole you know, part of honesty, uh, you know, with yourself and with others, uh, was something that was foreign to me when mm-hmm. I got there. Right. So, oh, yeah. and you know, well, like I said, I, I, I went to university of Texas, uh, drank, you know, I, I had my first beer at 14. So we'll do the short history. Went to university of Texas. I skipped my senior year in high school because mm-hmm. we moved so much. And I was really mad at my parents for taking me out of high school and moving me to a different city. So I went to university of Texas, Mm -hmm. pretty much perfected my drinking and drugging there. It was a big party school. And, you know, I made good grades except when I was loaded. And, uh, actually my first major was in psychology and Mm. I switched it the last year to radio, television and film thinking I was going to be famous. You know, I was working in nightclubs, uh, DJing to work my way through college, but that must've been a wild time. Being, being a nightclub was, DJ in, what, the late 70s, early 80s? Late, late 70s, early 80s. So, wow. you know, I, I had actually one of our club managers came in from Philadelphia and showed me how to mix records. People back then didn't mix records. But, yeah, I mean, especially Austin. Austin was really weird back then and an amazing music scene. You know, my brother played in mm-hmm. bands with Stevie Ray and Jimmy Vaughn. And, oh, you know, it was awesome. like a a big, a big blues scene. And, oh, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, the armadillo was 
people like Frank Zappa and Bruce Springsteen and Commander Cody. I mean, just it was it really was pretty epic yeah. time to be getting loaded. Yeah. Um, and you know, the only story I really remember that's of note back then is uh, I drank a whole lot. And you know, <laughs> look, I grew up in Texas, guys. So if you grow up in Texas, you know three things: you're gonna fish and hunt, mm-hmm. you're gonna play football, and you're gonna drink a lot. So I never really questioned oh. if I had a, a drinking problem. It was just kind of cultural. Mm-hmm. But I do remember a, a concert at uh, at Armadillo one night, and I probably you know did a lot of smoked a lot of pot, did some coke, did some mushrooms, and drank a lot of whiskey. Mm-hmm. And I remember waking up there. There was an auto body shop right at Armadillo World headquarters, and I remember waking up with a horn honking. And I had crawled behind the little metal sign that they put up that says "Don't park in front of the gate," and was asleep, you know, with puke on with puke with puke on my ostrich skin boots, uh, you know. And this guy waking me up at like seven in the morning, and it might have dawned on me then that you know th- this might kind of go on from fun to fun with problems, yeah. right? Yep. Um, but you know, finding the DJ career was really a perfect, you know job for a sober alcohol or a not sober alcoholic, right? It's like, you know, people brought you free drinks and you were kind of life of the party kind of felt like you controlled the place. Mm. So it escalated really quickly. Like I said, I moved to Los Angeles or Southern California when I graduated in 78 to become famous and just became a cokehead instead, you know, um, <laughs> but got, got to work a really amazing eighties club scene in Southern California. I worked for a chain called the red onion and, this big club called the uh, uh, cowboy and crescendo disco. And, you know, our teen disco nights, we would have people like Prince and stuff like that come in. So it was, oh, it was a fun time entertainment wise, mm-hmm. but like I said, it started going down quick. Mm-hmm. I got intervened on. And when I went into treatment and we'll just get going, it's like, when I went into treatment, like I said, I had no idea what we people did in AA, and I really thank God for that. I think if I would have known, I wouldn't have gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I get the resistance. And, you know, I mean, alcohol and drugs for me really, you know, up until that point, as bad as it got, um, they were, I never thought I had a drinking and drugging problem. I just thought I liked to rock and roll a mm-hmm. lot. And, you know, so I was always like, why are there so many cops on the street at three in the morning? You know, why don't my boss understand you have to drink to do this job if you're a nightclub DJ? I mean, it was always, you know, somebody else, which is kind of the point of the self-centered narcissism you find in, in addicts and alcoholics. But it was also, you know, I just never really thought it was that bad, but everybody around me did. So I, you know, what I was saying is alcohol and drugs weren't a problem. They were really, my solution, you know? Mm -hmm. So I drank when I was sad. I drank when I was happy. I drank if I was bored, I drank if I was fired up. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it it was a pretty fast downward spiral, but when I got to AA, I'm definitely a different kind of story. I I didn't really think I was any kind of bottom. I thought they were going to teach me how to drink successfully. Mm -hmm. But my first, first few meetings I went to, I just remember the feeling of like, wow, this is kind of my tribe. You know, it's like I've kind of found home. Um, so, you know, I always talk about surrender and the steps and something higher and service work because, you know, those are the 
basics that the guys I got sober with really helped me. And, you know, as somebody who's got some sober perspective now and done it a few days, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you're new or you're sober curious or you've tried AA and, you know, it didn't work or you're just kind of trying to figure it out, you know, I, I just always remind people that everybody had one day. Uh, everybody that's sober now counted days at the beginning. But honestly, that's not really the point. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you do have to put the plug in the jug or stop whatever your drug of, I don't call it drug of choice, because if you did it like me, it was no choice. So let's call it drug of preference. Okay. Nice. So you, you do have to, you do have to abstain from your drug of preference, mm -hmm. but that's not the point. Uh, the abstinence really isn't the point. Uh, so 12 step programs aren't a great achievement. You know, it's not a meritocracy where the longer you stay sober, the more stuff you get, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, AA is definitely not an abstinence accumulation club. Right. And mm. so I like, I like chips and birthdays and, you know, like all the social media with people hanging their time out there. But honestly, time is an illusion. Um, mm. You can be really happy and pretty free very quickly through abstinence and the 12 steps of this program if you'll get busy working them. And you can be abstinent a really long time and be really, really miserable. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I, I've watched many people with long-term sobriety uh, blow their brains out sober uh, or go back to drinking or drugging or, you know, I, I mean, it's just not, it's not a, a straight road journey, mm -hmm. but I think sometimes this, this idea that time is somehow going to fix me, whether it's 90 days or nine months or nine years, like you kind of have to drop the expectations of time, uh, you know, because time's the illusion. So, I mean, AA is mostly like a gift and it's full of grace and mercy. You know, grace is getting things you don't deserve and mercy is having things not happen to you that you do deserve, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and miracles and, and love, you know, but the weird part of AA at least is it all comes in the form of other sober alcoholics. So, you know, it, it can be an interesting place mm -hmm. to find those messages. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I tell, you know, people I sponsor or talk to, if you want to count numbers, count what step you're on or count how many sober alcoholics you called today or, you know, count how many smiles you created or clerk, right? Like count Absolutely. something that matters yeah. in, in the day, you know, because the secret of staying sober is, you know, we're just doing Friday. You know, it's like you only really ever have to do the day you're in, mm -hmm. you know, and I find most alcoholics mm -hmm. in our heads, we want to live in the past or live in the future. We, we really don't want to get here, oh, you yeah. know? And so, you know, getting here is really cool, you know? So it's, it's really, this is not a program of what, you know, uh, it's what you do. Right. Mm -hmm. And the guys I sobered mm -hmm. up with used to say, you know, AA is not a program of knowledge and understanding. It's a program of faith and action. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's like, I didn't have much faith when I got here. I really didn't like the God talk. Uh, I didn't 
relate to the big capital G. Uh, I had problems with pronouns way back before it was cool. Uh, you know, I didn't like the hymns. Um, you know, I didn't like the hymns. I mean, I just, it's like, oh, you know, because it just kind of made my skin crawl. And, and I didn't have a lot of religious hurt growing up. I grew up Wait, congregationalist and Unitarian. You don't like the church yeah, hymns? The church hymns are the best you know, part. I, that was the shit I did like. I, I, you know, it's interesting because, like I said, I had friends that were raised Catholic or, you know, Southern Baptist and, you know, or Mormon, and mm -hmm. they were around some pretty crazy behaviors. I, I really didn't experience that. But yeah. I just, you know, the problem, the problem with God and all the God talk in AA when I got there was it just wasn't hip, slick, and cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was so much more concerned about being hip, slick, and cool and what you thought about me. You know, and so, you know, it, it took a while for it to sink in. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you know, so I, here's the faith that I had early on. The faith I had early on was that the guys that were helping me, they believed in something. I wasn't sure if I did, but I believed that they believed, right? And that was enough That's fair. to kind of yeah. build a bridge, you know, to, to kind of just finally give up to like radical acceptance and just like complete surrender. You know, the guys I used to sober up with used to say, you know, dude, if you're not done, there's really nothing here for you. Mm. You know, the, the whole first step idea and mine was kind of took, you know, I'd say my first step. I mean, I was active in AA when I got out of rehab, was making meetings, uh, had a sponsor, was I worked the steps fast. But for at least the first couple of years, and I went right back to work in the nightclubs, by the way, I might not recommend that today, but I was back mm -hmm. spinning records within two weeks, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I look at it now and, you know, for the first couple of years, I was kind of like, did I quit too soon? Oh, you know, it's man. like, did I have a little wiggle room left, you know? Mm. <laughs> and the the good news is I, know Carly I, I was feels honest that. about it. You know, I was honest. <laughs> I was honest with my sponsor about it, and he would say, "You know, that's just your alcoholism, right?" And he, he said, "If you'll just be honest about it and tell on yourself and keep doing the deal, that that'll fade." And he was right, right? Yeah. I mean, that that's how you know the guy where that led the Saturday morning meeting used to say, "You know, it's cunning, baffling, powerful," mm -hmm. and he would always add, he was always he was always add and patient and chicken shit. Right. Mm. And that's what this disease is. It's very powerful. And, you know, a lot of times when we think we're thinking something, it's just your alcoholism, you know, and that's why being, you know, having sponsorship and having go to guys or go to girls that sobered up around the time you did and people to contact it's, you know, we learn to like share, not just call our sponsors if we're buying a new car, but we, we kind of get to share our crazy ideas with other sober alcoholics and mm -hmm. start feeling like, okay, okay. I'm not the only one that thinks this stuff, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it, it's very interesting. So I've, you know, I've, um, uh, you know, I've built some businesses sober. I was very lucky. I got to stay in my radio television film career. I, I've been in entertainment technology most of my career, which just means selling all the stuff that you see on rock shows the moving lights and the video and the software that runs it. So, you know, I've, I've spent a career really doing stuff I love and there's a lot of drugs and alcohol and rock and roll oh, and yeah. production and entertainment. 
but there's also a lot of sober people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've, I've worked with big designers and big rock bands and, you know, some of the most compelling artists are either really addicted or really sober. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I got to raise three beautiful daughters. Uh, that's probably another podcast, but, uh, uh, my daughters are Avalon, China and Alexa. Um, my sister's name is Alexa. Yeah. 32, 29 and 27 now. And they're all doing great. Um, had the first one with my wife at the time in the hospital and the second two, we did home birth. So I got to deliver number two and three. Nice. And you know, when you're whole, when you're holding your daughter freshly born, um, you know, you don't really doubt much that there's a higher power, you know, mm. it's pretty easy to, you know, just notice, uh, you know, how beautiful life is and that, you know, we're not in charge of much. Um, so yeah. David and Eric, do you hear that? Yes. Yes. They're we both hear that. about to be dads too. That's <laughs> awesome. Oh my gosh. That's so cool guys. So when are your wives do? <laughs> well, Eric's due first. So, uh, what June? May 7th. May 7th. Oh my goodness. Ooh. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. My bro. first daughter was born on, yeah. My first daughter was born on May, May 2nd. So nice. maybe you'll be a couple of days early and, and, and she'll have Avalon's birthday. So rad. Um, and yeah, mine's beautiful. My wife is due November 5th. My birthday's November 7th, guys. You're all over this. Oh, we're, we're killing man. it. You're all over this. <laughs> and you got a Scorpio nothing, coming. It's a beautiful thing. Another true story. <laughs> I was also a home birth. So that's pretty rad. That is rad. Yeah. yeah we had this amazing we had this amazing nurse midwife that I met doing peer counseling, which was kind of hippie human growth stuff in Houston at the time. Mm -hmm. And she was amazing. She, she had been an L, a labor and delivery nurse for 14 years and was like super spiritual and cool. And well, I mean, it's still just thinking about it. gives me goosebumps, man. Um, you know, so, so yeah. So, you know, just this idea of surrender, you know, this surrendering and, you know, I, I think Bill said it best in the big book. I mean, we don't always really get it, but, you know, he says in there, we had to quit playing God, you know? And so it's not just surrendering to the fact that I have a physical allergy and problem with alcohol and that alcohol is certainly a higher power for me, hmm. but it's like surrendering to the idea that I'm going to control much of anything, mm -hmm. you know, the spiritual idea of getting in, you know, everybody, it's like, do God's will. What does that mean? It just means going with the flow. It means life's happening. You know, my job is trying to get with it. So, uh, you know, and if you look up surrender, it, 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 it there's an element of giving up, but it actually means to stop fighting, mm -hmm. you know? And the other, you know, definition of surrender is to join the winning side. So it's like, you know, when you can lay down your arms and, you know, and like actually, you know, let the flow of life and the river go with you, man, it's much easier <laughs> to live sober. You know, it's yeah. hard at first because we just love drugs and alcohol so much. I mean, I really had a grieving process that I had to go through because I love drugs and alcohol more than anything mm -hmm. because it, it gave me a sense of control. Yeah. That when I didn't like the way I felt or I wanted to change the way I felt, you know, I could, I could, you know, do that myself. 
but I didn't realize that it was kind of creating this spiritual laziness in me. And, you know, a lot of the work Oof. getting sober is like, you know, the, the, you know, building the spiritual muscle, you know? So the first spiritual muscle you build, if you go to an AA meeting a day, you pray at the beginning, usually serenity prayer, uh, you know, uh, Lord's prayer at the end. So, you know, I was never praying twice a day before I got sober. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a small start, but it does start to change you. So, you know, spiritual laziness, you know, looks like sarcasm and cynicism and anger and hate and fear and resentment. And then you get into arrogance and victimhood and expectations. And if only, you know, and, and I didn't realize that all those attitudes and mental you know, places I went just meant I was being spiritually lazy, mm. you know, uh, because if you read any spiritual literature, you know, whether it's Western or Eastern, it basically says, you know, the fruit of the spirit is things like love and joy and peace yep. and kindness and patience and faithfulness and gentleness. And that last one in the Bible is self-control. So, you know, the fact that we're actually given a, this gift, this spiritual gift of like, I don't know about you guys, but I was obsessed with getting loaded and drinking before I got to AA. And the obsession oh, yeah. for me was, was lifted almost immediately. Hmm. Um, you know, so I've chased a lot of spiritual things in my sobriety, but really AA meetings and helping guys and being just a drunk among drunks uh, really is my sacred spiritual practice. And I've added a lot of stuff to it. Uh, I mean, those are fun chats and chapters to think about, mm -hmm. but never instead, never instead of, I had a very wise sponsor who was a like country guy down the middle. AA guy was not interested in, you know, Scott Peck or, you know, just anything, you know, Wayne Dyer, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle, he could give a crap about any of those guys. It's those like he was just an drops. AA guy, but, 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 you know, he encouraged me. He said, Griff, if that stuff is interesting to you, you know, going to Marianne Williamson weekends and, and, you know, sweat lodges and all the stuff I've done, he said, go for it, but don't ever forget it's, it's, in addition to not instead of your Alcoholics Anonymous program, that nothing will heal you like being around people that are broke like you, you know? So a lot of times I've, I've seen people go back to church and, you know, do yoga or find something that is a spiritual practice. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I'm good. I don't need a, I don't need AA anymore. And you know what? They're usually either drunk or back in the rooms if they're lucky in a few years. Mm -hmm. um, because there is a specific, you know, spiritual idea about, you know, the fact that where we're broken is actually turns into our greatest gift that we can give somebody. And, you know, it's like the quest to be normal, um, you know, is like, it's in more about alcoholism. Yeah. Mm. It's just the idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking. is the great obsession of every alcoholic. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And if you'll notice, it doesn't say that goes away when you get sober and it, it, it doesn't go away at 10 years mm -hmm. and it doesn't go away when you get the right sponsor and go to enough meetings. That's the great obsession. 
So, you know, if I'm thinking I'd like to control and enjoy my drinking, it just makes me a garden variety alcoholic. It doesn't mean anything's wrong or I'm doing the program wrong. You know, it, it just means, yeah, that's, that's going to be your great obsession. It's, it's like, you're going to be able to, you know, be normal someday. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, a lot of going to meetings, you know, is you see what happens to people that don't go to meetings. Uh, and it really, it's a really powerful way to keep you, you know, keep me green. You know, my program needs to stay green. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the, the other idea that I'll share is just this sobriety wheel. You know, that was something else my sponsor really told me early on. And I, I didn't realize how crucial it was going to be because of the ups and downs I've experienced in sober life. But, you know, the sober wheel, uh, if you draw a wheel, so start up at 12 o'clock and we're going to go around the clock. Okay. So we're going to go to 12, three, six, nine, and then back to 12. So at the top is pain, growth, serenity, complacency, followed by pain, growth, serenity, complacency, right? And so that's a wheel you go through in sobriety, right? And and I mean, what he told me, he said, Griff, it's totally normal. If you stay sober a long time, you're going to experience pain, you know, then you're going to grow, then you're going to do the work and get serene, then it's going to feel good and you'll get lazy and get complacent. And pretty soon the pain will be back. And and again, he said, if you're in AA and and doing, you know, sponsoring people and doing service work and and having a spiritual practice and really giving it away, then you can shorten the pain and complacency slices of that pie. Mm -hmm. But that's just the process that you go through here. Yeah. And again, it's just, it's not a straight line up, right? It's like every time you hit something challenging or do something really stupid. I mean, I've, because of my, I'm 66 now, so I've done a lot more stupid shit sober <laughs> than I ever thought about doing drunk. Right. And that's, that's the gift of long-term sobriety you get, you know, you get other things you get to work on, uh, as you kind of head through this thing. So yeah. it, it's really a fascinating experience. All right. Awesome. Awesome story, man. Well, we definitely have some questions for you. Um, who would like to go first? Anybody? Anybody? David, we don't need to go through this every time. God damn it! I don't <laughs> like to always go first. <laughs> you know you're you know you're going first. Why do you ask? Uh, because <laughs> it, it it's the nice thing to do. Okay. Um. Hmm. All right. Uh. All right. I'm gonna go with a group question first, so everybody's gonna answer this one. Um, so you, like you talked about how, like when you, uh, first like showed up, you really like found your tribe and like what my question is to everybody is, uh, how long did it take you to feel like you belonged? And I'll answer first, uh, as well. Um, really, I, like, I, I felt like I belonged my, my first meeting, like that, that very first time I, uh, showed up at the serenity center and, and Tyler and, and Brad and Dan and all those like young people just like me were, uh, on the, on the road of recovery. I was like, yeah, I'm like, uh, I'm about this. I don't remember anything that was said in the meeting cause I was crying very hard. Um, and, uh, but no, I, 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 shut up. Um, <laughs> but, um, 
yeah, I, I, I felt that feeling of belonging that, that very first night. So uh, what about you guys? Griff? You know, my first AA meeting was in that hospital. So they actually had a meeting that they took us to mm-hmm. at Herman Hospital that was outside people that came in and a lot of the patients. So some of them were doing the Thorazine shuffle. Yep. I don't really remember you know, too much about what was said, but I did make a connection with that group when I heard people share. Mm-hmm. And I started going to the Post Oak Club in Houston, which is in a different location now, but still there. And yeah, there weren't, I remember I was 28, which was a young person in 83 in AA. It's not a young person anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there were some crusty old guys that didn't want you to talk about drugs and just wanted you to talk about alcohol and all that normal uh, BS controlling stuff that people try to do. But yeah. generally once, once I sat in meetings and listened to the shares, uh, I connected. And honestly, it's probably one of the places my codependency worked because this chameleonism. So put me in a room with AA, uh, AAs and I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to want to be a good AA. Right. I think it's, I think it's Tony Robbins that says the only thing that will change you in the next five years is the books you read and the people you hang out with. So it's a very powerful thing, this tribe idea. Yeah. Love that. What about you, Carly? How long did it take to you to feel like you belong? Um, I would have to say probably the second meeting that I went to, which was our old home group, David and mm-hmm. Erica, I guess your home old home group too. Um, Briefly. But like, like yeah, walking into there and like feeling like the atmosphere that I was in, I, I felt like I belonged, but then it still took me some time to like still like open up and be comfortable with myself. Yeah. And I mean, not even like today, like today, even like there's still times where I feel like I don't belong, but that's my own shit and me comparing out. So mm-hmm. it, it, it can go day by day, but I feel like that's completely normal. And if I, if I stop fighting it and I surrender, then that belongingness is like, is, is always there and it's constant. Nice. Love that. Last but not least. Four months. Four months. Wow. That was such, four months. That was such a, like, you so, kept coming back up. for four months. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it that like in, in that, that form, that fourth month, what did it? Um, I got a job at the home group and I got a sponsor. All right. Service oh. work. Very, very. Oh, Eric was Mr. Service for a while. Yeah, but it's interesting. You know, there was a, 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 a woman in our meeting today and she's young and she's newly sober and she appears to be kind of socially distant. And but she shares because we do round robin at that meeting, which means everybody always gets a chance to share. Mm-hmm. And she actually said, said to the group today. Uh, you know, I have social anxiety, so I know I don't always look at you, but I really am connecting with you as best I can. And then she went on to have this amazing share. Mm. And it's like you said, you know, Robin, it's kind of like you start telling on yourself and things start changing. You know, it's really the power of the love in the group, right? I mean, that's, that's the mystery of going to meetings. It's yeah. so interesting to me. Yeah. All right, Carly, what do you got for a question? Um, 
So what step has been the most important in your recovery? Oh, what a great question. Uh, Ooh, he's thinking. You know, I'll be a good old timer and say all of them. Uh, first. No, you got to pick but, one. Got to pick one. But, nope. It, it, yeah, I, no, I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick. But, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying you, you, you do have to go through the process. So Absolutely. I'll say two things and then t- tell, you, tell you the answer. So the most important thing about the steps when you get here is, one, get busy and do them fast. Uh, actually speed and completion is more important than thoroughness. So the early AAs used to have people do the 12 steps in a month or two at the most, right? A lot of meetings you had to do step one, two, and three before they would let you into the meeting. Okay. So we've kind of turned, we've kind of turned this into kind of a crazy psychotherapy thing, Mm -hmm. even inventory. It says write an inventory of the business not a freaking history of the business. So, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm for being thorough. Uh, and the other thing of the steps is the steps aren't homework. They're not something you ever complete. They're another circular wheel kind of design for living mm-hmm. that, you know, as you, as you go through them a couple of times, you start incorporating them into your life. Yeah. So for me in this last 10 years, uh, you know, part of my story is I went through a heinous, life shattering divorce about 17 years ago from after 20 years of marriage to the mother of my daughters. And so step 11 really has been my biggest connection point. Uh, you know, uh, I, I did not meditate much before then. I was a pretty good prayer. Uh, but I like to talk as you guys have figured out tonight. So, uh, (laughs) I wasn't that, I wasn't that great at listening. And so this idea that you can be in AA a long time and even do the steps and still think that the monkey chatter that's going on in your head is actually you, uh, you know, the prayer and meditation and conscious contact actually means quieting and learning to quiet your mind long enough where you start to separate from the monkey chatter is what they call it in the East. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, meditation, I, I have a serious meditation practice now. And most of it's not cross-legged. A lot of it's guided in the evenings and the mornings. A lot of it's a walking meditation I do uh, down by the beach. Uh, but, you know, this idea that if we're going to pray and try to get go with the flow and align with God's will, then we have to, like, be quiet enough to actually let some of those intuition, intuitive thoughts, and that new new guidance actually come in Mm -hmm. and you know people will say people will say well i can't meditate because i can't quiet my mind and the job of meditation is not to quiet your mind the job of meditation is to sit and observe your thoughts which when you first start is like a freaking you know donkey kong and pinball machine going together at the same time (laughs) right it's like your thoughts but what happens if you start watching and observing your thoughts in meditation, like the clouds going by, they start slowing down. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, you know, and I, I'm still a guided meditator mostly mm-hmm. because I just like where it takes my head space. Yeah. You know, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of us still wake up in dark dread in the morning. And if I pray and meditate, that magically gets turned towards something higher. Hmm. Love that. Love that. Great answer. All right, Eric, what you got? So you mentioned a little bit about how 
you weren't a huge fan of the hymn and the God and the spirituality when you got in. Can, can I interject real quick, Eric? Yes. So wait, when you were talking about hymns, was just, it, it was H-I-M pr- it, or H-Y-M-N? I mean, to expect you to understand the situation at hand right now, David, is a lot to ask, right? Wow, you're um, a dick. <laughs> you, you're throwing a lot of shade tonight, Eric. <laughs> I see. I was thinking H Y M N. I know like what the, you were the thinking. That's why I, I was like, that's, that's the best and, part. And, and the beauty was, I rolled with it, didn't I? Or you yeah, did. I you did it. roll with it. Well, now I feel like an idiot. It's okay. It's I a, went with the flow, right? No, you were perfect. <laughs> Go ahead. But, Go but ahead, um, how how has your um, spirituality evolved since the you know those first few meetings to where you are today? You know, I think the biggest change for me, and, you know, I started out, like I said, I was very resistant to the God idea, but I knew there was something. Honestly, when I got sober, my most uh, spiritual experience I had had till I was 28 was doing mushrooms on Mount Bunnell in Austin, Texas, and laying out there with friends and looking at the stars and oh, knowing yeah. there was something higher. And, I, I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I mean, that really... You know, and and I always hunted and fished as a kid, so the woods were kind of my sacred getaway place in mm-hmm. adult life. It's been the beach, mm-hmm. but so I started out at this big pyramid, the Unity Church in Houston. Then I got really Bible curious, and I don't mean just about Christianity, but I actually started got curious about the Bible as a metaphysical guide, not the social religio thing it was of dressing up on Sunday, but it's like, what's really in there? Uh, so I went to the second Baptist church just because this guy was an amazing Bible teacher. Uh, and you know, then it was on to course in miracles. Like I said, after my divorce, I've been studying Buddhism for the last 17 years, uh, which, you know, Buddhism's not a religion, but it's a practice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the thing I find, you know, across the Bible and Hindu culture and Buddhism and AA, you know, is this, this idea, you know, I was looking for something external when I first got here, like what church will fix me or what belief will fix me or what weekend, you know, ceremony will fix me. You know, it's like, I I was like, you know, I'm just an answer guy. So I, I want answers. And, and the more, searching and, you know, actually painful surrender, uh, because of that divorce and being alienated from my three daughters and, you know, ups and downs in business and life, you know, it's more this idea. I mean, you find it in all three religions. I think the Luke in Christianity, Jesus says, neither shall they say here or there for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you go to then you go to Buddhism that says everything is imperfect, impermanent and changing. Impermanence leads to suffering, making life imperfect. But the self or the inner existence is not personal and it's unchanging, right? Mm-hmm. So again, this idea of something within. And then you read Bill, and Bill says we found the great reality deep down with Anis. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. And I I just replace he and him with love. So you can say it is only there that love may be found. Mm -hmm. It was so with us. 
with this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. So this idea that we have everything we need inside us when we arrive, it's already there. Mm -hmm. So it's really clear, you know, the sunlight of the spirit idea is more like, I thought you guys needed to clean my windshield, you know, and get the mud off the front. But the longer I'm sober, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to clean the windshield from the inside. That's where all the the dirt is. The sun's already shining out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I've already got everything inside of me that's divine, you know, and part of the Buddhists have this idea, you know, of, of this guy looking for his ox, right? And he's going mm-hmm. all over town asking people in the dark, where is it? And he's riding an ox, yep. right? Uh or, or the, the Buddhist idea of the finger that want, that wants to grasp the hand, right? Yep. And the finger can't the finger can't grasp the hand because it's part of the hand. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're looking you're looking for this idea, and it's like, dude, you're already part of the bigger thing. Mm-hmm. You just have to get quiet enough and notice the connection. Yeah. Right. And so that's back to step 11, you know, to go, go full circle back to her question about the most important step, you know, and, and the big emphasis, if you read language of the heart and, and as Bill sees it and Bill's later writings, he pretty much warns you over and over and over again, without the growth and enlargement of your spiritual life, you're screwed. And that's not a quote, but that's my version, right? It's like, you have to keep growing spiritually. Uh, or, you know, you're basically a dry drunk, which mm-hmm. I don't know about, you know, I've watched guys blow their brains out 20 years sober because they just refuse to, you know, find something higher. Uh, and, you know, cars and poker and sugar and, you know, all the non-alcohol and drug things you can try to stuff in that God-shaped hole. They don't fit in that God-shaped hole. You have to discover your own conception of something higher to really access the power that's kind of always been there. Right. Mm. Yeah. Love that. All right. All right. Um, what am I going to go with? I have a whole list of questions, but uh, I'm going to limit to one. Um, so how has recovery evolved over the 35 plus years of your recovery? And, um, where, where would like, what still needs to be done on like to evolve the, uh, the path of recovery in the future? So now do you mean my program, the AA program recovery in general? What, what's, where um, do you want me to hit that one from um, perspective wise? I would say like kind of like, uh, recovery in general and AA. Like, have you seen them evolve at all? Yeah, very little. And I think it's good. So, you know, I'm definitely a crusty old timer at this point with great flexibility and love for young people in AA and what's going on. Uh, But, you know, so the old timers, when I got here, you know, didn't want you to talk about drugs and alcohol. And I did anyway. You Mm -hmm. know, we laughed at them and said, dude, it, it took you 45 years to get here. I got here in five. You know, so we would, we, you know, I never took any of that crap seriously because my perspective always was, you know, you have no idea what I need to share in an AA meeting to stay sober. Mm-hmm. So, you know, group conscious, group conscious can clamp down on some of that. 
but generally, you know, I mean, dude, the chapter used to be called Dr. Addict Alcoholic. I mean, that, that made me mad when they changed that title, right? Like there's mention of pills and hoppers and stuff all through the big book and the stories. So a, a lot of those guys were poly addicted and I don't know where this, uh, you know, I get the singleness of purpose idea. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the many, many other 12 step programs that have popped up to help people be in a tribe of their brokenness to find this power that that's already inside them to get, get help. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think AA has grown a lot. I mean, I think it's because of the traditions, uh, and, and pretty good management and this crazy idea that nobody really runs it. It actually is still working pretty well. So, you know, and, and I, you know, as somebody asked me this question, you know, at a speaker meeting at, when we did Q and A and it's like, guys, AA is the same because it's about each one teach one, right? It's about individual sponsorship and doing the 12 steps and love. And so as long as the love stays in the room, you know, the format of it isn't that important. So, you know, I, I mean, I've kind of adjusted because I'm in digital marketing in the recovery world now. And it's like, you know, the, the social media stuff of posting your time, you know, that was pretty abhorrent to me when it first started because I, I believe in anonymity mm -hmm. and it's not, you know, part of it's because, you know, it's not that it's not a beautiful thing that you're sober a certain amount of time. Uh, but it's like, I, I don't know that, that, you know, but then I look at the power of social media to, maybe make somebody say, Hey, I could get sober. So there's good in it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, same, th same thing with the move to change the big book, you know, and it's like, you know, I just don't, I, I mean, the, the big book as even the problems I had with it were part of my growing to hear the real message in it. And in, in case people don't know, the big book's been rewritten already 20 or 30 times. There's a bunch of people that just said, you know, I don't like this language. So I'm going to rewrite it in, in my language. And there's a bunch of good versions out there. Hmm. You know, uh, there's a Buddhist version and a Christian version and a, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, so I, I like that. And I like studying, I'm reading this book that looks like a Gutenberg Bible right now called the writing uh, or the creation of AA, mm -hmm. the writing of the big book. And it's amazing. Oh my gosh. It's like, there's so much great history to feel like, wow, we're part of this. You know, and, you know, the miracle that these guys figured out what they did when there were only two of them or a hundred of them, and now there's millions of us, you know, I, I just, I, I guess as I get older, I look for the essence of things, mm -hmm. not so much, you know, I don't look for reasons to be offended anymore. Mm. You know, I, yeah. I look for, I look for the similarities, not the differences. All right. Love that. Carly, what'd you got? me yes yes you're, you're, you're. all right <laughs> sorry it it is hard to hear you a little bit today i know um you got you got garrett making a whole bunch of noise in the background so he's not helping i i moved it was too much nice. um so let's see um what does recovery mean to you and has that meaning like changed over time with from being in recovery like years ago to now. Nice. Recovery is life. Um, mm. 
And I think the greatest change, you know, from either early on or just the evolution, you know, uh, you see a lot, you know, and, and I mean, one of my favorite recovery books is spirituality of imperfection. So, you know, I, I keep reaching cause I think it's good to reach and keep growing. But when you really realize your complete human fallibility and imperfections, you know, there was a quote by William James in one of the devotionals today that talked about how beautiful it was to confess and do fourth steps and, you know, get rid of your rottenness, you know, it's like, once you make your rottenness public, at least you don't have to smear it around. Like you're really virtuous. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> so I, I just like that I can be sober and, and no, or not reaching any kind of perfection. You know, mm-hmm. I've done a lot of Al-Anon. We didn't talk much about Al-Anon, but I've been in Al-Anon for, you know, since that divorce. And it's like, you know, just lightening up, you know, and realizing it's like, man, recovery's not like a, a, a you know, it's not a sentence, uh, you know, and this idea of, you know, happy, joyous, and free. And, and, you know, those ideas are in there for a reason. That's, that's, that's the, product that's like kind of like that fruit of the spirit i talked about so if you're not happy joyous and free you might have some work to do Mm. right yeah Mm. love that all right eric last but not least yeah um hmm. so you mentioned al-anon and i was actually going to ask a question um about you know your role as a sponsor um to other people but i guess i'll I'll go beyond that and talk you know and ask about how what where do you feel like you do your most service and and this doesn't have to you know relate to just aa um but like where do you feel like you give back the most and where do you find the most enjoyment um in giving back well, that's fascinating. What a good question. So with COVID, um, you know, the entertainment and, and my technology job came to a screeching halt, right? Uh, all revenue generated in any kind of entertainment, sports or rock and roll uh, stopped. So uh, I've been thinking about working in recovery for 10 or 15 years. I've gone back to school and done some addiction studies and you know, it just, it's kind of at my age, I'm kind of like, can I go from success to significance and give back a little of what I've been given so freely. So it's been interesting working in the recovery business the last year. Um, that's been a place I think personally, I've always gone to a lot of meetings. Um, you know, I helped co-create a men's retreat that's still going on in Southern California on the West side men's group. Uh, I love sponsoring guys. You know, I've got a handful of guys, some of them still in L.A. and some here in Florida, uh, you know, and guys that I've sponsored in the past that are, you know, still dear friends and part of my sober go-to guy group. Um, And, and, you know, I just feel like, you know, being a guide for people who want it. And I think the biggest change, I don't think I was ever quite the Nazi sponsor because I'm too much of a people pleaser and want you to like me. So I wasn't ever too much of a jerky sponsor, but you know, the addition of Al-Anon and time 
you know, and my, my first sponsors were great. I've always had fabulous sponsorship in this program, but you know, they really gave me this image of, you know, the, the, the new, the new guys driving the car cause it's his program and, and I can't drive his program. So if I'm a sponsor, I'm standing outside the driver's side window and I can run alongside the car as fast as he wants to drive. Mm-hmm. Right. But if, if I start trying to make him do stuff, uh, you know, and, and that those guys would always say, don't tell them what to do. Tell them what you did. Right. Mm. And, and again, if, and, and, you know, they would say stuff like Griff, you can't steer a parked car. Right. And so if people pause in the program, there's nothing much you can do until they're ready to go again, right? Because the 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 desire and ability to work the program. Now, if a guy needs guidance or doesn't know what to do, I'm glad to tell him what I did and kind of give him a framework. But I, I just, I think the nicest compliment I ever got was from a buddy named Shane in, in West LA that I sponsored. And he's a beautiful guy now. He's his life's completely bloomed. And, uh, he, he gave me the nicest compliment. He said, Griff is the Phil Jackson of AA sponsors. When I get into stuff, nice. he just wants me to play. <laughs> he wants me to play through it. Right. And, and so, yeah, it's like, I, I got out, I, you know, I can't fix anybody. And those same early AA sponsors used to, you know, the, the most freeing thing that was ever said to me. And this was after, uh, my first couple of guys I sponsored, one got a DUI and was drunk and in jail within a month. Another guy got drunk and killed somebody in a car accident, Ooh. right? I mean, it wasn't going well, right? I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing it right. And my sponsor right. just looked at me and he, he said, Griff, you know, there's nothing you can say to get somebody drunk. And on the corollary flip side of the coin, there's absolutely nothing you can say to somebody to keep them sober. Right. All you can do is just offer what was given to you and it's going to be what's going to be right. And, and it was just so it's like, so, you know, it's like if, if you see yourself more as a channel for something higher, which is just, I did these crazy steps and I don't really understand how, but they somehow relieved me of this bondage of self and wanting to drink and drug all the time. Mm-hmm. And you can just share that with people then that has to be enough. Whatever they do with it really is none of your business, you know? But I mean, there's nothing more heartbreaking than watching somebody go back. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching the light come on with somebody you sponsor. I mean, wouldn't we all rather have guys that show up ready to, you know, with a big book and a pen and a yellow pad and they're ready to go. I mean, but not everybody's like that. Uh, and I just, I think you have to trust that you're just Johnny Appleseed, just plant the seeds and, you know, it's between them and their higher power. It's really not your business. Hmm. Perfect. All right. Well, I think we are about out of questions. So we would like to thank our guest Griff for joining us this this evening. (laughs) What a pleasure to join you guys. What a, what a cool cool experience thank you thank you so much super grateful for you super grateful for all the work you do in social media and putting the podcast out and just grateful to participate in my own recovery man thank you for the opportunity absolutely and uh we'd like to uh 
Blah, blah. Let me try that again. We'd like to get get our listeners uh, over to you as well. So will you uh, give yourself a plug real quick? Let our listeners know how to find you. Sure. Uh, let's see. Instagram is at Griff Palmer, or you can find me Griff Palmer on Facebook. It's G-R-I-F-P-A-L-M-E-R. Uh, so I'm out there. Shoot me a note. Put a post up. Uh, if you're in South Florida, let's make a meeting together. And uh, any way I can be of service, uh, I'm always open for that. So thanks for the opportunity. All right. Well, Eric, would you like to uh, let our listeners know how they can become part of the uh, podcast recovery family? We we came up with a good way to do this last week. I know. Week, and I, I, can't, I can't remember it. I don't know. Um, but that was, if, be- that was better than the media statement. It was better than the media statement. Oh, um, we're, but, we're oh wait, it. wait! Listen to listen to last week's podcast and get the get the way to do it. <laughs> okay. I'll do, I'll do that, Eric. Mom. Um, but here at Podcast Recovery, we need your support to help keep the mics on. So um, you can join our home group through our Patreon um, page, or you can support us by liking, commenting, subscribing, reviewing, and doing all the things you can do on our many social media channels on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Uh, David? All right. Here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and Podcast Recovery is here to provide it. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Griff. Thank you, Eric and Carly, for your time as well. But most importantly, everybody and thank out Thank you, David. Oh, thank you. Uh, most importantly, everybody out there, <laughs> Carly, if you'd let them know. Stay safe and stay clean. <laughs>